1: Dot com slash sacred text today to get ten percent off your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P dot com slash sacred text. Chapter Thirteen: The Secret Riddle. Katie was removed to St. Mungo's Hospital for magical maladies and injuries the following day, by which time the news that she had been cursed had spread all over the school, though the details were confused, and nobody other than Harry, Ron, Hermione, and Leanne seemed to know that Katie herself. I'm Vanessa Zoltan.
2: And I'm Casper Terkyle.
1: And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text.
2: The Houston Grand is one of the great opera houses of the United States. And also, the city hosts The Pensive, our local Harry Potter and the Sacred Text group. It's run by Kariana Mance. And if you would like to join Kariana and the fabulous people who gather there, you can go to com forward slash groups.
1: So we are lucky enough to be joined today by Mike Schuber of the Amazing Potterless podcast, which I'm sure you all already listened to. Mike, we've invited you on today to tell a story through the theme of superstition. Do you have a story for us?
3: Yes, I'm glad you did. Unlike Stevie Wonder, I believe that superstition is the way because growing up, it was a it was a very big part of my my sports career because I started playing baseball. And then that's a very superstitious sport that kind of seeped into everything. But the particular story that I have is the most ridiculous superstition that I do. So, one of the biggest superstitions that's out there is knock on wood when someone says something that could jinx something good that's about to take place. So, for most people, they don't do it all of the time and they do it for real life things. For me, uh, I do it when I'm playing a pretend basketball video game called NBA 2K. I get very superstitious when the announcers, who are just pre-recorded computer programs at this point, when they say something positive about my team, I will pause the game and and knock on wood because i don't want them to jinx it so if i've scored 10 <laughs> points in a row and they say oh you know the vancouver groover on a 10-0 run i will pause the game <laughs> and knock on wood three times and this is altered depending on where i've lived because i've moved around so in houston i would swing open the cabinet door of the entertainment system where my television rested so that it was close enough where i could easily knock on wood with my hand uh, when this would happen during the game which they did an alarming amount of times anytime someone something was going right for me. They had to tell me that something was going right for me. It's like, I'm well aware, Doris Burke, that I'm playing very well please don't tell me because now it's going to get messed up. So I leaned the cabinet door so it was close enough for me to reach over and knock. When I was in Seattle, I would make sure that my coffee table was close enough to my knees so that I could easily lean forward and knock on wood. And then now in New York City, uh, the only thing I can resort to is knocking on the floor, which I know is real wood because I don't trust that my IKEA furniture is actually made out of wood. So I don't know that it'll count to fend off the bad juju of the pretend announcers. So that, that's like the, the biggest one that's stuck with me is, is the knock on wood thing. Anytime someone says something that will jinx it, I will try to knock on wood or the most wood like substance that is around me. And the final thing that I want to say about the way that I do this is that it's not just a particular knock. It's not that I just knock on it like I'm knocking on a door. It's a very specific knock that I have to do where I take my right pinky, the the biggest knuckle, and I knock in a one, two, three pattern. And it has to have the right cadence and the right sound. Otherwise, it doesn't count. And I'll have to redo it. So I will do it until it sounds just right. So here, I'm going to hold up uh, the back of my phone close to the microphone and do a little uh, Foley work, a little ASMR here. So you can kind of tell what the cadence is. And if it doesn't sound right, I'll keep doing it until it does. But it's a little along the lines of like a one, <laughs> two, three. And it's got to be that. And I still do that all the time. And it's silly. and makes no sense. But here we are. <laughs> Oh, but I
2: totally get it, Mike, because I remember watching Wimbledon as a kid and I would create these very elaborate rituals before every time that Tim Henman had to serve and like it involved Mm -hmm. throwing a ball in a particular way against that wall and it had to bounce off that wall and then I'd have to stand on the chair. And then at some point, my younger sisters would watch with me and I would make them like walk in the door at the exact moment that he hit serve because the first time they'd walked in, like he'd served an ace. And I think in a way, all of this is a way of increasing our participation in what's happening, right? Like, oh, yes. I can't influence what Tim Henman is doing on the Wimbledon tennis courts. And you what? Don't, I know, shocker. Um, <laughs> and like, you don't really have any power over the algorithm of, of what they're going to say and what piece of pre recorded commentary is going to show up in your game. But we can react to it. And there's a way in which it involves us
3: in some sort of like cosmic drama that otherwise we wouldn't have any connection to. Definitely. And especially with watching sports, I think it it makes you feel like you are contributing. You're a part of the team. Casper, you should watch baseball with my dad because he (laughs) is ridiculous with watching sports. People have to sit in particular chairs. (laughs) If you're sitting in a certain way and the Yankees start doing well, you can't move. So if you're sitting in a chair and the Yankees are going on a run and you got to go to the bathroom, tough luck because you're (laughs) not going to the bathroom until the inning is over. Let's get these priorities (laughs) right.
1: So I'm curious, Mike, as to what your theory on superstition is. I sometimes think that like locking my back door is just a superstition. If somebody wants to break into my house, one deadbolt on the back door is not going to be the thing <laughs> that prevents them. So I think that that is, you know, a symbol in superstition of like, look, I'm, I'm making an effort here in keeping myself safe. So I'm wondering if you think superstitions are, to Casper's point, about I can't participate in this, so I'm going to try. Are they about trying to control things that are out of our control? Are they like wishful rituals? What What is your yeah, theory on I superstition? Think-
3: I think that it's just something that A, gives you peace of mind, and B, gives you some sort of agency. Like, I am taking the active decision, even if I recognize that this is silly and this is something that is out of my hands— I am going to do this tiny little ritual of sorts to make it feel like I am in control. And I think for some things, it makes a little more sense. Locking your back door, that is still nice to do because it's an extra level of safety. My fiance Kelly religiously checks to make sure that all of the burners in the stove are Mm. off before we go to sleep. And she'll smell each burner and look in the oven and, and all of sort of stuff like that. So those things, I think, are a little more logical than me thinking that Doris Burke and Clark Kellogg are going to mess up my pretend basketball team's game. But also, it allows you to not have to look back and think, ah, I should have done this because I-, I don't know with any with jinxing of anything. The only time you really remember it is if it actually comes true. If you're <clears> watching a sports game and they say something like the Yankees have never lost a game uh, when they're winning by three runs after the ninth inning. Right. And then they find a way to lose it. It's like, well, thanks, Michael K. You didn't need to say that. Now you jinxed it.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting that that you said it like that because a place that I saw that in this chapter is, first of all, the pensive is like the great opportunity for hindsight, right? Like you literally get to go back and relive something and be like, oh, that's where the mistake was. And in watching Dumbledore interact with a young Tom Riddle— I was like, what are you doing? He asks you to prove your magic, and you do. He asks if he can go to London alone, and you say yes. Right. Like, you are just jinxing this child. You are reaffirming every individualistic Instinct that he has. You are showing him that magic is power. Like Dumbledore should already be separating all of these things out and problematizing them for Tom. But I am only projecting superstition onto what I know is a cursed relationship and a a life that we know Voldemort is going to live. But Dumbledore would not necessarily have any reason to be going into this thinking, "Oh, I have to be defensive in X, Y, and Z way."
3: Yeah, I always thought it was a wild aspect of this was Dumbledore actually giving into his demands to prove that he can do magic. I was so confused by why Dumbledore would actually do that. Not that he's asking him to do anything bad or that he's stooping down to his level, but it just seems weird to give this this petulant child like give into his demands. I don't know. I feel like Dumbledore doesn't have anything to prove, so I never really understood why he went that far to do it.
1: Before we dive more into this, because, yeah, there's so much weirdness in this interaction between Mm -hmm. the young Tom Riddle and Dumbledore, I'm wondering if the three of us should all remind our listeners what it is that happens in this chapter in an epic 30-second recap challenge. Make sure that you knock on your phone.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I can go first.
1: Okay. So, Casper will go first, and then, Mike, which is better for your superstition if you go Second or last?
3: Um, I am going to go to the old wives' tale of first is the worst, second is the best, Aww. and I will go second.
1: <laughs> As the middle child, who's the second, I love that <laughs> adage. So, Okay, Casper, I will count you in. On your mark, get set, go.
2: Okay, so Harry comes up to Dumbledore, and it's back into the pensive. They go. Uh, Dumbledore's hand is looking worse than ever, FYI. Um, they arrive into a memory of meeting Mrs. Cole, who runs an orphanage. And um, Mrs. Cole is, like, very, um, you know, kind of warm and competent, but likes a little tip of the old gin. And once she starts talking, we learn lots of stories about young Tom Riddle. Um, And, oh, my God, 20 seconds. Oh, my God. Um, uh, And he hurts children. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) That was... (laughs)
1: Okay, you we have Mike and I.
2: Let me let me turn to Mike. It's a good thing there's three of us to cover this chapter. Mike, you've got 30 seconds on the clock. Give us a 30-second recap.
3: Do I start from where you left off or
2: no. do I go No.
1: You try to do better.
2: Yeah, whole thing, whole thing. Just uh, just forget oh, that man. I even tried because it was such a poultry effort. Um
1: <laughs> Honestly, but you can do whatever you want. Okay. Depends on how competitive okay. you want to be with Casper.
3: <laughs> got it, got it, got it, got it. 30 seconds on the clock. Here you go, Mike. 3 Two, one, go. So it's another time for Harry and Dumbledore to do pensive stuff. Uh, they got to go back and figure out the stories of Tom Riddle when he was an orphan and stuff. They are going and talking to Mrs. Cool, who gets drunk off of gin and just starts spilling all the beans about Tom and how he's seconds. a bit odd and was a bully and he about the thing in the cave. They talk about what he did to the little kids and then Dumbledore comes in, starts to talk to Tom. Tom's like, "Are you a wizard?" He's like, "Yeah, I am." He's like, "Prove it." Dumbledore lights a cabinet on fire, but then nothing is on fire because Tom's a magpie. And then they go back and Harry's confused.
1: Oh. Uh.
2: You've got skills. All right, Vanessa. Three... Two, one, go.
1: So, yeah, they arrive and they're getting all this information from the orphanage about Tom Riddle. And um, the, um, the Mrs. Whatever is really excited to get rid of Tom. And Dumbledore is like, awkward. You know that you're going to have to have him for the summers, right? And she's like, I guess that's better than having him the whole year round. And Tom also has like a collection of all of the things that he's stolen because he likes tokens of things that remind him of the horrible things that he's done, which is really interesting because it's setting up, it's foreshadowing for horcruxes.
2: Dum, dum, dum. Uh,
1: Never has a chapter been better recapped. Apparently, we always need three of us. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah, feel free to call me in for any sort of recap. I'm happy to do it. Anything that I can do to get back at all of my business professors in college that told me I talked too fast in my presentations, I'm happy to use that skill and uh, yes. put them in their place.
1: <laughs> so, Mike, I'm wondering if there's anywhere else in this chapter that you saw this theme of superstition. Because I do think, you know, we are at the beginning of a war and I think chaos and fear are moments in which superstition can really flourish.
3: Right. I th- I think, I don't know if it was exactly in this chapter, but it was more about seeing how... Voldemort's decision to do the Horcruxes with the items that he used and the places that they were at and the significance that they had. I think that was the biggest thing that made me think about Superstition here is, like I talked about with my Superstition, I realized that it is not anything super important. And I realized that it's probably a waste of my time to have to keep pausing the game and knocking on wood while I'm playing it. But for Voldemort, it is important for him to have it tied to parts of his past, people of his past, things that were influential in his upbringing. I'm not sure if Voldemort recognizes why it's silly because then people can go on the hunt to try to figure out where they are and do detective work. But I think, again, it's that peace of mind thing. He feels good about putting the Horcruxes in places that he feels that either no one will go or no one will be able to find, whether it's the Chamber of Secrets because he's too powerful or no one can get through the cave because no one will be strong enough. I think it's him making a decision that ultimately isn't smart but gives him that control. And to me, that was the biggest thing I saw in this chapter alluding to future superstitions of Voldemort.
1: I mean, Voldemort is obviously obsessed, we even hear in this chapter, because he he has this line about his mother that she obviously wasn't magical yeah. because she died. And if she was magical, she wouldn't have died. And so we see that his obsession with wanting to avoid death, you know, has already incubated, and he's 10 or 11 years old here. And so I think it's so interesting that he's a collector of items as a form of superstition, as a way of warding off oblivion, right? Like one of the ways to have a legacy is to leave behind a collection of sorts. And it makes sense to me. He, He doesn't have a home. He doesn't have a lot of things or relationships or people who are his. The depraved part of it is obviously that he is collecting things from moments in which he has been awful to somebody else. But I do think that there's something superstitious about wanting to elude death even in just the items that he's collecting.
2: Okay, I think this is helping me understand Voldemort on a whole new level, because Vanessa, you just pointed to a m- massively important moment in this chapter where he equates magic with life and non-magic yep. with death. Yeah. And so his obsession with avoiding death is in fact, I think, a sort of twisted, trying to prove himself as being magical. He wants to prove himself to be special because if he dies, it means he hasn't, Like He hasn't lived into the fullness of his magic. And of course, he is a half-blood. We know that from the very beginning. And so there is always this fear that he is not special enough. He's not magical enough. I think that's this kind of core drive that we're seeing in him. And so each of these totems, as you're saying, is actually an affirmation of being alive. It's not even a memory of like, I want to be reminded of this moment when I tortured two other children in a cave. It's like, This is a moment when I had power and when I was special and when I was magical, like the moments when I knew magic worked are the moments, sadly, when it was oppressive and horrific for other people. But it's the moment I felt alive. And I, oh, my God, I feel like I understand Tom Riddle so much more because of that (laughs) reading.
1: Well, and I also think that that's why bullying happens, right? It's like I feel good when I make somebody else feel small. And then it's just an addiction to that feeling.
3: Yeah, I think also what this all sort of boils down to is is something when he's talking with Dumbledore, he talks about how he can manipulate the things around him, whether it's people or talking right. to snakes or or stuff like that. And again, that goes back to giving him control, which I think also goes back to the superstition. Like I said earlier, for me, it gives me that peace of mind, putting me in the driver's seat. I am making the decision. I have taken away the jinx and I've taken away the agency from pretend Doris Burke and pretend <laughs> NBA announcers. And now i I am driving the ship here. So I think that's a a similar thing that you can look to with superstition and, and giving you that power is that's what Voldemort wants to have. He wants to be in control. He wants to be in the say. He doesn't want death to happen to him. He wants to be able to decide what happens to him and, and all of that. And that goes with the prophecy too. The prophecy inherently, he is uncomfortable with something else determining his fate. And he wants to take fate into his own hands because he is scared of death and he is scared of non-magic.
2: And he comes by it, honestly. I mean, the moment that Dumbledore walks in... The first reactions that the child Tom has are, are you a doctor? Right? Are you going to take me away? And then if it's not a doctor, are you taking me to the asylum? Right. Don't call me mad. Like any when he is not in control, he's he's in danger. And so that that obsession with control, I, I can see where it comes from. I mean, he's literally born into this establishment. And we see from Dumbledore's visit at least one perspective on one day that this is a place that's relatively safe. But the first thing I realized is that when Mrs. Cole brings Dumbledore up to the room, she lets Dumbledore into the room alone with this child and closes the door. I just saw how dangerous this place was and how how many things might have happened in this orphanage that we don't know about. And frankly, there's enough evidence of what happens in those places when it isn't properly safeguarded and how vulnerable children do get abused. I, I, I just suddenly understood much more why why Voldemort is so obsessed with control.
1: Which leads me to another moment that I think we see real superstition, which is when um, Harry is starting to sympathize with Voldemort at the end of this chapter. And Dumbledore says, like, you are right now, Casper. Oh, no. Are you starting to sympathize with Voldemort? Mm. And Harry, and I think it is only superstition, Harry is like, no, no. Like, I will never sympathize with Voldemort. That is like him knocking on, Mm. you know, on a board and being like, no, no, no. I am not somebody who sympathizes with Voldemort. I will lose control over my hatred of him. I will lose control and agency over him being bad and my mom and dad being good. He like superstitiously is like absolutely not. I feel no sympathy for him as a way of regaining control of this narrative.
3: Yeah, and in classic Harry fashion, he's got no poker face on at all. And he sounds like <laughs> a sophomore in high school trying to deny his crush. What? I don't like I don't have a crush on Jessica. I don't think Jessica's cute. <laughs> <laughs> but, because Harry said this before. I, I recently have been watching the movies for my podcast, and even in the even in the second book, Harry, after his run-in with Tom Riddle in the diary. He talks to Dumbledore afterwards and he is concerned about the similarities that he noticed between right. him and Tom. So ha- definitely Harry feels about this. So so yeah, Vanessa, I agree that I think it, it is kind of like a superstition for him that it's something he is aware of and he knows that it, he does feel this way. So he's got to try to will it into existence that he doesn't by trying to proclaim that he does not sympathize with him and he doesn't have, you know, any sort of compassion for him, even though he kind of does. Yeah, it's so interesting. And I, th- I think,
2: I mean, that's the whole point of what Dumbledore is doing with these Pensieve trips is, is to open Harry's not necessarily compassion, but at least insight into understanding Voldemort's psychology, because that's what's going to help him find the Horcruxes and, and ultimately defeat him, right? So uh, for Harry, it's still confusing. Why am I seeing these memories when we're supposed to be dealing with the prophecy and preparing me to fight Voldemort? But it's all part of how Dumbledore sees the strategy working. So it it does make sense.
1: I really did find it remarkable upon this reading, though, that Dumbledore doesn't do any meaning making of like... I should have gone to Diagon Alley with him. Yes, Like, Dumbledore just makes such obvious pedagogical mistakes with the help of hindsight, right? right? I can imagine justifying in the moment, this is a child whose every moment is scrutinized in an orphanage. He wants a moment of freedom. I'm going to give him a moment of freedom. Like, I can imagine justifying making the decisions that Dumbledore makes. Um, This is a kid who's drunk on power. I want to show him that at the end of the day, I have more power than he does. I can light everything he has on fire in an instant. But all of these strategies so clearly backfired. And so I just think it's so interesting. And I'm wondering why we think Dumbledore doesn't say, like, I should have taken more care. What this kid needed actually was love. And, like, I instead fell for every trick.
3: Mm. Yeah, I'm not sure as to why Dumbledore isn't more reflective here because we've seen other instances in especially the last three books in the series where he is okay with admitting fault and admitting mistakes. So it's not something that's out of character for him. Right. At the end of Five, he he talks to Harry about how he regrets the way he handled everything that went down. And in Six and Seven, yeah, he still... Yeah, but
1: those are all humble brags, right? <laughs> it's like, I'm sorry that I loved you too much.
2: <laughs> well, to, to some extent, I think what he's doing is... The point of this session is to give Harry the information that he has. This isn't the moment for Dumbledore to like work out his regrets. Like that's it for a a different conversation with a different person. I think Harry is still, you know, a 16, nearly 17 year old. Like I'm not sure what Harry would gain from that kind of reassessment
3: at this point.
1: I do. He would learn that love is always the right strategy.
2: But surely that's what he's known from the beginning.
3: It, I don't know. Harry can't get it through his thick skull. Dumbledore has to tell him every single book.
1: <laughs> yeah.
3: But only at the end. It's <laughs> love, <laughs> Harry.
1: Fair enough. Fair enough. Maybe it's a superstition. That's that a superstition. Dumbledore will only tell Harry at the end of the school year about how important love is. And this right, is the right, beginning right. of the school year. <laughs> that's right. Dumbledore's like, I can't tell you that. He's not soon. He's not
2: going to survive if I tell him now. I have yeah. to tell him afterwards. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that is how I codify
0: Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. Forty five dollars upfront for three months plus taxes and fees. rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than forty gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at Mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like
2: a
1: chatbot bot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Redfin, it's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. I will say that there is something in me, this sounds really bad, a way that I see myself in Voldemort is like since my dog was like nine weeks old, I've talked about her dying I mean, like, we all know that the greatest tragedy about dogs is how short their lives is, right? Like, they come into our Mm -hmm. lives. They are, like, better than any human we will ever know. And then they die way too soon. And so I think that I constantly talk about her death as a way to, like, demonstrate to the world, like, I know. I know she's going to die. So, like, give me as much time with her as possible. And it's also a form of, like, self-manipulation that I'm, like, Uh trying to prove to myself that I will be okay with it and train everybody else to know that I won't be. <laughs> mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> I think it's a way to to kind of try to coach yourself into being able to move on. It's yeah. something that I have gotten into with my podcast, since the whole thing is it's me going through the Harry Potter series for the first time. Eventually, the show has to end. So I yeah. have to keep telling myself and other people that, yeah, you know, Potterless will go on for a while, but eventually it'll run its course. And I I totally agree with you, Vanessa. Part of it is t- to look nice and mature and like I won't be devastated when I have to stop making it. I also think it's a superstitious slash make me feel good thing by me putting it on running out of material and not like... The show becoming unpopular or podcasting getting usurped by some other form of media makes me rest easier at night to say, ah, this is why it will end, because I will run out of things, not because it has lost popularity or relevance in this world.
1: It's not because blogs are going to come back.
3: Who Who knows, man? <laughs> Telegrams are going to make a huge comeback. <laughs>
1: exactly. People
3: just love,
1: Morse love code. the
3: Pony Express coming through. Yeah. It's going to be great.
1: <laughs> and I think, right, like this is all in the spirit of Voldemort about trying to avoid our own deaths, like our own oblivion, ah. right? Dumbledore says it in this chapter, right? We've been made a fool by time again. Mm, um, uh-huh. Death and time makes us all fools. We all age and die. Not just your podcast, Mike, but every podcast is going to come to an <laughs> end, right? And so I think by winking at these things, we're trying to show that we're in on it. And Voldemort... Takes it too far and rather than trying to wink that he's in on it, he's trying to beat it, which I think is what makes Voldemort a monster.
3: Yeah, I think it's, especially with Voldemort, it's that he's trying to control something that he inherently can't control. There is no wizard that's going to be immortal. Even people like Flamel are eventually, something will happen where they die. And I don't know, this This actually, go, bringing it back to sports and stuff is something that a lot of athletes try to do is they try to retire on their own terms rather than have it be brought upon them. So you'll see athletes who probably could play for another three more years before it gets to the point where they would either be in a minor bench role or or not playing as much. You'll see them retire two years early so that they can announce that they're going to retire. They have a farewell tour for their last year. That last year they're playing, they're not completely hobbled. And then when it goes out, it's like, wow, look at. Dirk Nowitzki's career he played for 21 years and even in that last year he was okay. Dwayne Wade all these other guys it's similar where they want they want to go out on their own terms they want to be the people to decide when things end and how things end so I think Voldemort doesn't want to have death come upon him. (laughs) I mean not that he would ever choose to be like I've done it I've run my course now but I think that's his flaw. I mean even when you look at the tale of the three brothers the brother that has the cloak who ends up In the good situation, he could have kept avoiding death, but he got to a point where he willingly embraced death into his open arms or whatever the exact quote is. As
1: old friends.
3: Yes, there it is. Welcomes death like an old friend. So I think that that is something that, like, you can see Voldemort's reasoning, but he still missed the mark in that. Ultimately, the thing that he is trying to control is something that he has no control over at all and happens to everyone. And it ultimately leads to his sooner demise than if he just, like, lived a regular wizard life. He would have been way older.
1: And... You know, I think it's a moment that I love in Dumbledore, and it is the greatest difference between Dumbledore and Voldemort. When Dumbledore is given his death sentence, he's like, great, how do we take advantage of it? Mm. How do we make sure that it's the most meaningful death that it can be? Totally. Whereas Voldemort is just going out of his way to try to control things. And nobody could accuse Dumbledore of not being a controlling person, but (laughs) there's something beautiful to me about letting go.
2: I mean, all of this is making me think of how actually the whole of Voldemort's mission targeting Harry from the very beginning of these books, in itself is superstition. I mean, this this prophecy, yeah. I don't know how real it is. And for sure, I don't know how real it would be if Voldemort hadn't acted on it. There's something in which this whole series of events is kind of the outcome of, of taking something maybe too seriously. And therefore, by taking it seriously, making it real, which that is just a whole other question, which was also echoed for me in this chapter, whereby you know Dumbledore, after promising to take young Tom Riddle away, then comes back and says, "But of course, he'll be back every summer, like you said, Vanessa. I-, I don't know why I mean, is there no is there no place for him to go elsewhere? Surely he's not the only child in this situation. It seems like s- superstition is actually changing how people imagine their physical reality and therefore influencing
3: what actually happens to them. I think that you've identified the biggest problem with Hogwarts is that there is no summer camp at the school. Yes, they and those kids need summer camp. That is a travesty.
1: <laughs> that is obviously the biggest problem at
3: Hogwarts. Come on, canoe races in the lake with the squid there? Well, come on. It's right there. It's
1: definitely a missed revenue opportunity for (laughs) Hogwarts. And then maybe they could afford like a guidance counselor. (laughs) I'm just thinking that I guess this is more of a fan fiction moment, but I'm just thinking what a good omen Voldemort leaving this orphanage is for all of the other kids. Mm. That like this is great news for Tom, but this is also great news for like the kid whose bunny he killed.
2: I mean, yes, yes. For nine months in the year, these kids are not going to have to deal with this quite frightening child, but he's going to come back every summer. I mean, this is going
1: to And the kids at Hogwarts uh, are going to have to deal with him.
2: I mean, there's a whole new bunch of kids that are going to deal with him. But But it's also fascinating to see Voldemort put on his, like, yes, sir, I'm a good child, and I will, like, put on a character that's allowing me to navigate this relationship in a successful way. I wonder whether that's what most of the time people see at Hogwarts, because he's kind of practiced it by the time he comes in. But we know plenty of stories of of him, you know, manipulating Hagrid to get, you know, thrown out, et cetera, et cetera.
1: I'm wondering if you guys see any symbolism in the fact that bunny rabbits are often a symbol for magic, like you pull a rabbit out of your hat and that he kills one. Am I just just in a Halloween frame of mind?
3: No, I mean I think if you asked JK Rowling this she'd be like yes that is precisely what I was going for it's a bigger picture of magic blah 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 I think that could be it also bunnies are just really cute and seem harmless so if you go to your way to kill one what is a bunny ever done wrong whereas if he killed a cat there's a fair amount of people out there who are like well all cats are evil so not the worst thing in the world well the other thing with bunnies is there's
2: many of them at one time right they they replicate quickly and it connects to me of what he says about there's so many Toms, right? Like, I don't want to be Tom. I want to be special. And, and, a, and a bunny rabbit is something way too common. Um, and it's beneath me. So that, that might be in there as well.
1: He's just trying to dominate everything.
3: Yeah, he's trying to make Professor Dumbledore do magic That's like right. he's a puppet. Dance for me. Do magic. <laughs> Prove it. Hot
1: take, guys. I think this Tom Riddle guy is going to grow up to be bad news. <laughs> <laughs> I do not see good things in his future.
3: Seems like a little bit of a problem. I know. He brought kids into a cave and now the narrator won't even tell us what went wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, Mike,
2: <laughs> thank you so much for being with us today. We love Love Potterless, and we're so
3: grateful that you're that you're on this show now, and uh, Potter Podcast forever. No, Thank you so much for for having me. It feels great to finally be on your very thoughtful, thorough, and accomplished podcast as opposed to my goofy make-em-ups, poke fun at the series thing. Now that I've read all the books, I'm glad that I can bring something more thoughtful and thought-provoking to the table to show my range. Look, I can also say smart things too. Excuse
1: me. You and I had a very thoughtful conversation about the Yule Ball.
3: We did. That was so fun. I listened back to to that the other day and oh it was great it I was had so, fun. so
1: much fun talking with you about the Yule Ball so for the, our three listeners that haven't listened to Potterless already if you want to start with me you can start with the Yule Ball episode but really just go back and do a listen through it is just a read through of the Harry Potter books Mike reading them for the first time and being quite incredulous about a lot of the things it is almost the opposite of our podcast. Instead of treating the books as sacred.
3: <laughs> Honestly, I, it's, I'm it's i glad you said it because I do say, I <laughs> say that to people sometimes. I'm like, have you heard of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text? It's the opposite. They treat the book like it's high praise and for the, fr- uh, until I get to the end of book three, I didn't think the books were good. <laughs> and then thankfully I came around on it, which is nice. I think that's part of the fun of the podcast is to see me go from mm. these books are overrated to just kidding. I love these and I'm obsessed with everyone and if anything happens to Ginny Weasley I am going to be in shambles.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. We, we're really glad to have had you with us. Have, have a great rest of the week. You too. Thanks so much for having me.
1: So, Casper, we are going to do Havrucha again. And my question for you is... What is Dumbledore's motivation in getting Mrs. Cole drunk? It seems to me that Dumbledore is going to be able to get the information that he wants about Tom anyway, that Mrs. Cole is eager to get rid of Tom... And that there's like a level of professionalism that is like, I'm going to be his future educator. You are his past educator. Can you please tell me everything that you know about him? This seems to be a conversation that like two reasonable adults could have without this very strange power move that is made of manipulating Mrs. Cole and really taking advantage of an apparent weakness that she has. The only answer that I have is actually that Dumbledore doesn't have a tremendous amount of respect for her or for muggles and is like, this is a weakness that you have that I can exploit to expedite this. But I cannot come with like a positive potential reading as to why he pulls out this gin and starts getting her drunk in this moment. And I'm wondering what you make of it.
2: Huh, okay. I was like, well, this is such an obvious answer. But now I'm seeing that it's maybe
1: not. This is a good Havurta. What was your obvious answer?
2: Well, that he's trying to get information, right? Like he's trying to get information. But what I'm now realizing is like, he uses magic very expressly here, right? He makes her look at a piece of paper that's blank and is communicating somehow to her that everything is legitimate and fine. But perhaps he doubts the capacity of magic To extract stories that might not be obvious to find, right? Like that, that there's something about his magical abilities, which limits the information he might draw out to the questions he would know to ask. And what he really needs is Mrs. Cole to speak freely about anything that's associated for her with a young Tom Riddle. And so kind of plying her with alcohol is a way of of letting her kind of like freely associate and just tell stories rather than kind of him going in with his magical abilities to like surgically remove specific answers to specific questions.
1: Yeah, I guess I just also think it would be really gross if he used magic to that end too.
2: Oh, it's definitely gross.
1: <laughs> so, I, so I understand why he uses magic in order to prove to her that this is legit. I don't understand why he didn't show up with some sort of official letter. Like this just... All seems to be so easily done above board. Mm. And I guess my bigger question is, like, why doesn't he just do it with integrity? Why doesn't he just spend a minute building a little bit of trust with this woman saying, you have cared for this child for the last 10 years. It is now my turn to take care of this child. Why not do this the right way it seems so easily achievable the right way. and then if it doesn't go well, resort to magic or resort to Jen. but he doesn't even try he just goes in and starts manipulating
2: I mean what he's not doing is zooming in on a broomstick on a in a magical car abducting Tom and kind of saying see you later and then obliviating everyone so let's put this in context of what could happen with with kind of a magical context what is interesting to me is that, And we see this in his conversation with Mrs. Cole is she is very careful not to say anything that would jeopardize Tom's place in this school. So I think if he had come in and kept it all very above board, I certainly don't think he would have received the quality of storytelling that he does from Mrs. Cole. And he is already aware that that kind of extra information is important. So I'm I'm not judging him too harshly. The other thing is he might himself want to, you know, just a little tipple. (laughs) This this is his best way of getting that to happen.
1: I don't know why. It really grossed me out. I mean, obviously, it's a very different context now of, like, men drugging women in order to get them to do things. And I, I know that this isn't nearly a similar context, you know, and she partakes in the gin knowingly. And I don't think it's magical gin, right? He's not plying her with drinks. She's pouring them herself. I guess I just believe in the muggle-like tricks of building trust. And, like, what makes him different from Voldemort?
2: Well, I mean, I think this is an important question, which is we see a ton of mistakes being made by Dumbledore with Voldemort. And to some extent, I mean, he's a much younger man at this point. So we're not seeing wise, experienced Dumbledore. We're seeing beginner Dumbledore. And just as he makes mistakes with the young Tom Riddle, I think perhaps he's making mistakes with Mrs. Cole. This might actually reveal his own lack of confidence in his ability to engage with muggles, for example.
1: I think it's his belief in wizard supremacy.
2: Oh, interesting. Perhaps it's even more than wizard supremacy. It's just like... Dumbledore supremacy, right? Like that he actually behaves this way with everyone that he meets. And we we know in his much later admission that it's that fault that he identifies as to why he never wants to be Minister of Magic. Because if he's in situations where he has power, he knows that he will act with it in ways that end up being dangerous to the people he he loves. And I don't think he knows that in this flashback, right? Like he is, he is still happy in his internal story that he's the best smartest most powerful person ever and actually the normal rules don't apply to him and he knows best in every situation
1: yeah this chapter just really made me sad for
2: yeah
1: all the missed opportunities that I think Dumbledore just like lets pass by
2: And this is why when Slughorn says about Harry being so humble that that's the reason why Dumbledore likes him. I think that's the main trait that Dumbledore knows that he doesn't have. And that's why he admires it so much in Harry. And maybe why he's so invested in this whole fight to begin with is because he sees his own complicity in it it being created.
1: Which does actually make me get a little bit of respect for Dumbledore back. He certainly doesn't do any meaning-making of his mistakes with Harry, but nor does he hide his mistakes from Harry. Right,
2: right. Yeah, he doesn't alter his memory just to show something that would have been nicer for the viewer. Gosh, I thought that was a simple Havruta question. There's actually a lot in there. That's really beautiful.
1: There always is. Thanks, Vanessa. Thank you, Casper. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Redfin, it's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince. This week's voicemail is from Kimberly, who's giving us her thoughts on the chapter Silver and Opals.
4: Hey Casper, Vanessa, and Ariana. This is Kimberly calling in from London in the UK. I'm sending in this voicemail to respond to a statement Harry makes in this chapter. He says, The Half-Blood Prince had proven a much more effective teacher than Snape so far. As most of us know, Snape is the Half-Blood Prince, and we can see the irony in the statement as we reread this book together. As I've been re-engaging with the books, I realized that Snape's teaching plays an uncredited but fundamental role in Harry's journey to bring down Voldemort. As we know, Harry's go-to spell against Voldemort is Expelliarmus. In addition to using it to save his life in the Goblet of Fire, it is the first spell Harry teaches Dumbledore's army in the Order of the Phoenix. The Death Eaters know it's Harry's go-to defensive spell, and even though Lupin advises Harry not to continue using it, Harry relies on it again in the final duel against Voldemort. It is Snape who teaches Harry Expelliarmus. In the Chamber of Secrets, Snape uses it to disarm Lockhart in the Dueling Club, which Harry later uses to protect himself against Lockhart in the same book. He even says, you shouldn't have let Snape teach us that spell. I've always been wary of Snape as a character. I appreciate the critical role he plays as a double agent, but I cannot forgive him for how he treats Harry throughout the seven books, even if they are ultimately on the same side. I do love the idea that Snape accidentally gives Harry one of his most effective weapons against Voldemort. Finally, I wanted to send in a blessing to the three of you. One of my favorite things about your podcast is the love that you three share as friends, and I'm constantly reminded about the love I have for my own friends, many of whom live in different countries but still give me so much joy and love every day. Thank you.
1: Kimberly, thank you so much for that beautiful blessing. I'm delaying responding to your Snape comments because he and I are in a fight right now and I think that you make a very good point but I am not in an emotional place to give him much credit for anything. I'm still mad at him for, you know, Neville doing better when he's not around. I just, he's a horrible teacher.
2: But I do think it's really interesting that Harry learns this crucial, you know, like signature move from one of the most difficult relationships in his life. And I think, I don't know, I can't say it in the moment or even like a year later, but there have been relationships in my life that I really struggled with and through from which I've learned some of the most important lessons about how how I want to live and like maybe even who I want to be in relationship with next time. So th- I, I think there is something in in what Kimberly is saying that does strike me that, I mean, it's it's really important what he teaches Harry and not just in, in the land of spells, but I think in how to be in the world.
1: Oh, I absolutely agree. I think Kimberly's point is brilliant. And I think your point is exactly right. I've also had relationships that looking back, I'm like, oh, I didn't like your style, but actually your substance was great. Or you actually taught me a great deal. But I'm just seeing the ways that he has stunted these children right now. But yes, Kimberly, I thank you so much for your brilliant point and your beautiful blessing. So Casper, it is now time for us to each bless somebody. Who would you like to bless this week?
2: Well, having just talked so much about Dumbledore, I actually still want to bless him. (laughs) I think in his older age, he has found the right middle ground between that kind of dangerous supremacist idea and and a full confidence in his own abilities. And the way he describes his memory as different from the other narrators whose memories we've entered before just made me smile so much. He says, I think you'll find it rich in detail and satisfyingly accurate. And so my blessing is for anyone who just has had a moment of competence where it's like, ah, you ask that question, here's the briefing that I prepared, knowing that that might be important to you. Or like, yes, I did think of the gluten-free cake because I knew you were bringing your new girlfriend and that she's gluten-free, you know, or whatever it is to like have that moment where you're like, yeah, I really did this thing and it worked. It's a very happy feeling. So <laughs> blessing for Dumbledore. How about you, Vanessa.
1: I would like to bless either Marope or Marope. I don't know how we pronounce it. We've probably mispronounced it.
2: Depends if you're from the north or the south of England. Should we say that?
1: <laughs> Great. So, so I would like to offer her a blessing for this just like really horrible way that we now know she yeah. gave birth. And after the conversation that we had about her two weeks ago, it just struck me as so sad that she names Tom after these two men, neither of whom made her happy in any way that she names her son after Tom Riddle, who obviously they are no longer together. And then after her very abusive father, it broke my heart. Mm. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and join our Facebook group to chat with other listeners about this episode. You can leave us a review on iTunes in order to keep Casper company late at night when he doesn't know what else to do. And you can always send us a voicemail. Please do. Support our fundraiser for IESIS, and thank you so much to everybody who already has. You can continue to do so by going to HarryPotterSacredText.com and clicking on the orange button that says, Don't be a Dursley. And remember that it's election season, so if you have a local election going on near you, make sure that you get out and vote. And we hope that you also get out and come to one of our live shows, either in Washington, D.C., on November 7th in Chicago, Illinois, on November 21st, and in St. Louis, Missouri on December 19th.
2: Next week, we'll read chapter 14, Felix Felicius, through the theme of resistance. This episode was produced by Not Sorry Productions. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our associate producer is Chelsea Ersin. Music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we are part of Night Vale Presents. Thanks to Mike Schubert from Potlis for joining us and telling us this week's story. Thanks to Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Maggie Needham,
3: Megan Kelly, and Stephanie Paulsell. Bye. Oh my gosh! Please, you go camping in the Forbidden Forest, build a treehouse up there. You, know, you make a whole ropes course. There's so much opportunity. Aragog makes the ropes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Aragog is the, is the one belaying everyone on the ropes course. <laughs>
3: oh, a zip line through the Forbidden Forest! That'd be so great. Yeah,
1: obviously, guys. <laughs>